Welcome back again to another episode of Space in 60 with me, Clint Grauman, and two of the hardest working guys in the space business, Andrew Polipchuk. Good day, folks. And Chad Baker. Hello, hello. Well, I was really surprised we were able to get Andrew on the show this week. I think it's getting close to like hockey playoffs or something like that. Oh, it's in it's in playoff time now. It is playoff time, absolutely, but good thing there's no games during working hours. Uh, do you have working hours? Indeed we do, but I'm bump. He's already having a couple of beers getting ready for the games tonight. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Going big horn. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that. You know, one time I came up to Canada. I can't remember if you were with me, Andrew, but one of our, our mutual colleagues, one of the coolest guys in the space industry, we went to like a junior league or like a junior pro hockey game in Lethbridge, Alberta, like a 16-year-old league or something. And all these people had these horns that sounded like a vavuzela or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was the craziest thing ever. Minor league sports are amazing. Yeah, those games are, are awesome. You know, and with those tall skates on, like I hadn't been to many hockey games or at least with seats close enough that I could really see what Actually was going see. on. Yeah. So I guess you go to like a junior league and you can get right up next to the ice, but all these guys, they're, they're kind of tall anyway, but they've also got these, like how tall are the skates? Uh, I think it's got to add at least what? Six inches? inches? Yeah. Six yeah, inches. Like yeah. A few yeah, inches like on that. it. Yeah. yeah. A couple inches at least. Yeah. Yeah. But these guys were huge. They all look like they're like 6'10 out there. Yeah, that was a really cool experience. Like lots of fights, lots of fun. The vavuzelas, or what? What do you call those things? Just the hockey horn. That's what the uh, soccer hockey one horn. was. Yeah, hockey the horn. Hockey horn. <laughs> <laughs> I you love it. In. If it's not, it is now. It's the hockey <laughs> yeah, horn. The hockey so horn. We just coined. We just coined it right there. Yeah, and every guy on the ice had the same haircut. Yep, hundred percent. Cool. The mullet. The mullet. The mullet stringing out the back from the helmet. Yep. Yeah, but we're glad to have you. Despite playoffs happening right now, it's um, I'm really glad you're on the show, Andrew. Oh, thanks. And I'm glad Chad's on here too. <laughs> yeah, Chad. Yeah. Chad. <laughs> I tell you, don't be a Chad, but you're Chad. But you should be like this, Chad. Like this, Chad. This is the Chad. <laughs> this is the good example of it. This Chad. Chad, not that Chad, not the Florida Chad. Right. Enough about us. We, we've got a great show coming up today, and I'm sure these guys could talk about themselves all day long, but instead, we'll talk about our guest coming up on the show today, someone that's been around the space industry for a long time, um, very storied career, one of probably the most well-connected people in the space industry. You would probably know him from his career at the International Space University, Quite the long career. He's worked all over the industry, connections everywhere. Juan Dadalma. Juan, um, we're so excited to have you on the show. Can't wait to hear about what you've been up to. It's a pleasure to be uh, with the three of you, my first in Space in 60. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely welcome. You know, I would feel a little bit bad for you that this is your first introduction with a couple of 
crazy guys like us. Um, you've got a long history in the space industry and quite the professional. And uh, sorry to you and to our audience for having to expose you to three guys like us. <laughs> well, I hope to learn from you as well. You know, you can learn a lot through questions. They say a lot of things. So I look forward to your questions. Yep, absolutely. So uh, we're looking forward to hearing about your your long history in the space industry. And I understand that you've recently come off of a long career at, at ISU, which for our community out there, we have lots of colleagues that have gone to International Space University. And I would imagine you've seen quite the array and quite the diversity of people coming from all different areas of the world and all different disciplines in the space industry. And, and I think that'd be a great place to start. Tell us about what you've done there in the past. Yes, it's good that you mentioned the International Space University, Clint, because this gives me the opportunity to thank uh, the two sponsors who allowed me to enroll as a student at ISU. And this happened uh, in the last millennium, uh, 1989. I uh, was privileged to benefit from a joint scholarship uh, from two space agencies. Remember, last millennium, uh, we had invented old space, not new space yet. So I was sponsored by no startup, but I was sponsored by the French space agency, CNES, who was employing me at the time, and by the European space agency, who was waiting for me to join again. So I was a little bit in between two agencies. And what I discovered at ISU when I attended the 1989 Space Studies program in, in the summer was the first one that was done outside of the US in Strasbourg, France. I discovered what we could call a startup university. Uh, remember that uh, ISU was founded by three students. They were under 30. Uh, Todd, Todd Hawley, Peter Diamandis, and Bob Richards. They were two from the U.S., one from Canada. They were attending different talks in the U.S., and they were inspired by speakers uh, such as astronauts and others. They decided that if humanity wanted to expand into space in a peaceful way, someone should start educating those who will do that educating the leaders in policy, in engineering, in science, in law, in journalism, uh, you name uh, the specialities. And if those future leaders of humanity in space would study together in the same place, or at least would know each other and would have done something together, whether they were from China, from the Soviet Union, from the US or from South Africa, probably there would be more chances for peaceful exploration to space. And I think that the term multi-planetary species had not been coined yet, but the, the ISU founders, they were going in the same direction. So I was really privileged to attend that summer school, which really changed my life and my career. And I have really uh, not only used the uh, knowledge uh, in all other disciplines, the knowledge about policies in all other countries that I had no idea before joining that school, but also I've been using the informal yet very powerful effect of the network. Uh, when I look back at the different jobs I had, and in average, I've changed jobs every three or four years, and even countries, without leaving uh, my 
employing space agencies, I was able to, to move around. And every time I had to hire someone or look for a partner or a customer or a supplier, I would very easily tap into the network of not only classmates from my own ISU class, but the larger community of ISU alumni and faculty and lecturers who come from all over the place and who you can very easily reach out to with a simple question, uh, who is knowledgeable in this field or who works in this company or who is going to attend this conference? And you always get an answer and you can very easily establish a, a quick conversation with someone who might be in a competing company or in an exotic country, but who has been to the same school as you have. And that, as we all know, uh, makes the initial contact much, much easier. Yeah, I can only imagine that that network has got to be extremely broad, reaching around the world. And how long were you working with with ISU, did you say? I cannot give you a short answer because <laughs> it has had uh, several episodes. <laughs> so I only told you about the first one as a, as a student or, or a participant uh, in the ISU jargon, in the professional development courses uh, like the one I attended we did not have students, we have participants, because you don't call a student as someone who has 20 years of experience in the Chinese space sector, for example. It's a, it's a very intergenerational school as well. And uh, since I liked that atmosphere of the startup university, as I call it, I decided that I would try to stay connected. And I was lucky to be invited as a guest lecturer in the early years. And then eventually, Isa asked me, would you go to Strasbourg for three years and run the SSP program? So I was seconded from 2002 to 2005, uh, running uh, four summer sessions in different countries because it's an itinerant program, uh, very intense. Some people call it the International Sleepless University because if you really want to, <laughs> if you want to attend all lectures and all optional activities, you you hardly find time to sleep. So that experience took me to uh, California for one uh, space studies program at Cal Poly uh, Pomona. And uh, the following year in Strasbourg in the 2004, I went to Adelaide, Australia for another few months to run the summer school there. And then uh, 2005 was in uh, Vancouver, Canada. Uh, so thanks to that experience, really, I, I could learn how to work intensively, hands in hand with local host communities who would help us run those courses every year in a different country. So that was a three-year secondment. And then I went back to ESA in different jobs. And when I retired from ESA in 2018, uh, there was a nice coincidence that ISU was looking for a, a president. And I was uh, lucky to be selected. So that was my my last job uh, for uh, another three years. See, right when you start to retire, they pull you into something else, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's that's a good way. As long as you don't take someone else's job, it's it's good to feel helpful and to continue doing something for the community. And still now, uh, now as I was saying, I, I have retired twice already, but I still feel useful and helpful as a student mentor, uh, giving career advice, uh, also uh, giving some lectures or some presentations here and there. 
And I think it's a good transition um, to still be active and not stop from one day to the next. I would recommend this to uh, everyone who thinks they are retiring. So having been very, very involved and active in the space industry for, I guess, what, since the 1980s with ISU? Is that right? Yes, late 80s. Yeah, so you've probably seen like several transitions of the industry over that time period. What do you think about this new space approach to the industry today? Like that's that's got to be a big change from from when you started with ISU. Yes, yes, that's true because if we look at the evolution of the space industry, we could say that before I got my first job in the sector, we had a very clearly government-driven space economy, right? From the Cold War to uh, to the early uh, spacecraft and, and human uh, flights, it was all government-driven. I would say until, until the Apollo program, so from the 50s to the 70s. And then we have seen a second phase that we could call commercial space, from the 70s on, where uh, large corporations were investing in uh, some applications like uh, satellite communications and later on uh, space transportation. And today we are in what we could call phase three, new space, that started roughly around the year 2000, where uh, really we see a paradigm shift where Private companies really behave independently of uh, governmental space policies and also independently of government funding. They target mostly equity funding, so private investors, and they promote uh, affordable access to space, more affordable access to space, and also uh, novel uh, space applications with uh, intelligent algorithms and uh, using Uh, data that is already available uh, there from different uh, satellite constellations and transforming that data into marketable, useful information. Uh, So I've seen these three phases and it's fascinating to see how new space is today uh, transforming uh, the way private companies use space for uh, new uh, businesses, whether it is to go to space or to be in space or to use space down here on earth and i don't believe new space is a bubble that will burst Uh, we see all indicators and this is backed by a number of very serious analysis um, that prove that we will continue seeing a significant growth of the private uh, space economy the the new space in in the next years I mean, we in particular definitely find this uh, a very exciting time, but I, I think the public has really caught on to the likes of of SpaceX and, and what Elong's doing. But it, it, it's a very interesting aspect, the way you present this in terms of, of how it was really government-driven and then commercialized, and now it's, it's kind of gone in, into a private aspect. I agree. I, th- I think that'll continue on. Where do you see a bit of a, a, a tipping point in terms of, I guess, a broader adoption of of space and space technologies. Do you think that's coming here in the very short term or do you think that's going to still require 
quite a, a number of years of investment. Do you, do you have thoughts on that? Yes, I think we we are living this tipping point already, because if we look at the turnover of uh, the, the space economy uh, globally, uh, we can look at, uh, for example, six or seven years ago, uh, all analysis of, of the uh, turnover of all space economies uh, together was around uh, $350 billion, less than 10 years ago, $350 billion per year. And the same companies who are producing these studies and these numbers, they are all forecasting now that by 2040, so in less than 20 years from now, this will have grown to at least $1,000 billion, so $1 trillion, at least. And uh, this trend is already proven in the last six, seven years by uh, what economists call the compound annual growth rate. So the, the expected growth over the next years is at least uh, four and a half, if not five or six percent. And that's very high when you compare to other sectors of the economy. If you have a yearly growth of five uh, percent, that's uh, really very, very high growth. And um, even during the years of the pandemic, there doesn't seem to have been uh, no slowdown, no blip. Slowdown, that's right. So globally, there, there is a solid and continuous growth. And I don't know if you would call this a tipping point, but that's where we are. Taking it back, when you were young or what got you into the industry? What got you excited about space and, and wanted to be a part of it all? I might uh, disappoint you a little bit because it was not... Uh, uh, Star uh, Trek or uh, the Apollo landings. <laughs> well, that's, um, this was, is a good it was thing. Star Wars. He's going to let it know. <laughs> and I think the more we hear, there are these different paths into space. So I'm very excited to hear about that, yes, actually. Yes. In my case, as I grew up in a multicultural family with a German, a Spanish, and Catalan at home, and then French and English at school, I discovered that I liked languages, but also I liked working and living with people from other backgrounds, other languages, other cultures. So my dream job as a university student in engineering was to end up working for an international organization. Didn't know which one, but I thought that working for an international organization, wherever it was in the world, in an international environment is what I liked to do. After a first couple of jobs in, in engineering, in Spain and in Germany and in, in business uh, development, I was lucky to find a job advertisement from the European Space Agency. And I was not hired, so I had to try three times. So I discovered that there was an international organization called ESA, and I ended up working there because I wanted to work for an international organization. And I only started learning about space once I was an, an employee. When I... When I heard you list off your, your background there, I think you listed off, what, five languages? Like, do you speak five languages? 
Well, in the meantime, I've learned a couple more. So I would say that I can have a good conversation, even a professional meeting in seven languages. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. As, and, as our listeners know, I have a hard time with one. Yes. Well, I think languages are are a very good investment. And I've always said this to young people who seek for a career advice and who are asking, what should I study? Uh, What should be my first job? Uh, Where should I go? I always say, please add languages in your basket, because no matter what job you will apply for, If you have the required background and knowledge and skills and experience, that will give you a good number of points. But if on top of it, you have languages, you will have a great competitive advantage. uh, And that will be good for for your professional development, whether you want to be an employee or or an entrepreneur. You know, the languages, they're not just a a skill set. I mean... Speaking and and fluently working in seven languages, it's I would you know relate that to running seven operating systems in your head at the same time. Like that's a huge undertaking. How do you how do you decide whether you're running Mac or Windows at any given time? Yeah, good good comparison, good comparison. And we do use the term computer languages. Uh, that's correct. And it's hard to imagine how the same computer could run two or three or four operating systems at the same time. But the human brain is better than computers, in at least in this aspect. And uh, I would say that what has helped me significantly is uh, learning several languages as a kid. Uh, so here goes my advice to the parents. If you have some multicultural background or if, if, uh, if the family has... Uh, one parent with one mother tongue and another parent with another mother tongue, I would always encourage them to raise the kids with two languages. And this has worked with our kids as well, because for them, it's uh, not an investment uh, when they are small. And this has been observed uh, scientifically. If a kid grows up, and the mother speaks one language to the kid, and the father uh, speaks another language to the kid, as long as they are consistent, at least for the first two years of the kid's life, the one parent should always talk one language to the kid, the other parent the other language, so that the kid associates one language with one person, with one face. That's apparently how the learning process works. And then, What the parents speak among themselves or what they speak to others doesn't matter. For the kid, the reference is one face, one language, at least the the parents. And that worked for me. It has worked for our kids, for so many other kids, without effort. So it's good to start early. But still, you can learn a new language at any age. I agree with that. You know, Juana, it makes me think of a story. I was riding the train back from Berlin to where I lived at one time in Europe. And I was riding with a friend and it was late at night. 
won't say why we were out so late at night, but it was probably close to two in the morning. And we were riding back and, and he was telling me, he spoke, he said, Clint, I speak six languages and I just learned a seventh. And I said, really? I said, how did you learn all of those languages? And he told me a great story about growing up as a child, learning these, these languages. And he said, but you know, the easiest one, or I said, which one was the easiest? And he said, the easiest one was Italian. And I said, why was that one so, so easy? And he said, because I got an Italian girlfriend and I had to learn right away. <laughs> yes, that's a good school. I agree. I agree 100%. Yeah, it was it was a great school to learn Italian. And I thought that was an incredible story. But it has to have been this huge help working at ESA, International Space University. With your international career, I can only imagine how much easier that makes your life working throughout the world, for sure. Unlike our, our North American selves and colleagues, we... We struggle with with more than one language often. Well, let me let me turn that one around, if if I may, uh, Clint. One advice I also give to uh, many people who ask me is, if you have a chance, go to the U.S. because that's a great place for learning. Uh, now you will not learn maybe foreign languages, but uh, if you are a student or if you're a young professional or an entrepreneur, go to the U.S because that's a great place where you can learn things that you will probably not learn in Europe or in other parts of the world. And I experienced this myself as well. I spent one year in Philadelphia as a, as a young graduate, and I discovered that uh, in the US, it's the best place to learn uh, about a job, to get a specialization, whether you go to a university or to a company, because the whole system there is designed to get the best out of everyone and to push you for more, whether it's intellectually or, or physically in sports or economically in, in business. The whole system is designed to get the best out of people. So even if you don't want to live in the U.S. for your entire life, go there for a few years. That's an incredible perspective. We don't often hear that coming from, from the other side. So that's that's really exciting and great to hear. What do you think you learned in the space industry? Like what was what was what pushed you and what did you learn when you worked in the US that maybe was unique you wouldn't have gotten otherwise? And my first experience in the US was as a, as a young graduate, I was looking for a way to spend a year in the US and uh, I did not succeed in uh, getting a scholarship. Uh, those times in Spain were still uh, with very limited opportunities in terms of international scholarships, etc. But I found a nonprofit based in the U.S. who would arrange for a foreign uh, young professionals or, or students to spend a year as a language tutor. Obviously, I, I couldn't claim to be a language teacher, but I could be a tutor helping a teacher. Uh, so I spent a one academic year at a high school in Philadelphia, and I could um, take some courses in uh, business administration, uh, part of an MBA in the evenings. And I saw that if you find the right people and uh, you have the right, uh, the right uh, mentality, you can learn so much in the US. And then later on in my career, I have worked uh, hand in hand with people from the US 
from NASA, from universities, from uh, space corporations. And I've had, uh, I, I have many, many friends in the space sector in the U.S. And that has always been a, a pleasure to, to work and to learn from them. I think uh, there is a, maybe a more dynamic, a more um, flexible, but still very rigorous and, and very hardworking business culture in, in the U.S. That, that I have appreciated very much. You know, one of my my favorite business cultures, um, especially in the space industry, is is in Australia. Um, that's not usually something that comes to mind, but I've always thought that the Australians are just really hard workers, like those in in North America. But they've got a little bit of class, like a European. <laughs> uh, it's interesting you you mention Australia, and I cannot agree more, because uh, as I was saying. The ISU took me to Australia for a few months uh, back in 2004, where I was in charge of running the uh, space studies program. And I had to work with the local hosts from university, from sponsors, uh, from the local government in, in South Australia. And I have said this so many times since then, namely that there is an interesting business culture in Australia where people basically have two very clear characteristics. Uh, one is they tend to under-promise and over-deliver, which is great uh, in business. Maybe I was lucky and I, I fell into the, the right Australians, but I've seen many more of them afterwards. <laughs> so they under-promise, they over-deliver. And the second aspect I appreciated very much is that uh, probably comes from the British uh, heritage that they are always calm. You never see stress. In the worst uh, scenarios, you never see stress in people, no matter what happens. Uh, and they don't make you feel stressed. Now, probably the stress goes under the carpet or, or somewhere <laughs> hidden. Right. Uh, but apparently, it's it's not a good thing to show that you are stressed or that you are in in bad uh, humor and that, that your uh, people don't shout, people don't uh, behave aggressively. So I have appreciated that uh, very much from the Australians. Sorry, we're not talking much about uh, new space, but uh, since we're talking about Australia, let me tell you that I also admire the way the Australians have put together their space program. And this uh, has an interesting link with the ISU because the promoters of the uh, new Australian space policy and budget and space agency, they came from the earlier Australian Space Industry Association. And some of them studied at ISU in the late 90s. They went back to Australia and they started doing their homework, as you say, hard workers. They are not in a hurry, but eventually they convinced the federal government and the state government of South Australia to invest in space, to create a space agency. And now they have a very respected yearly budget with the National Space Agency, with a new space that is admirable. Uh, in terms of uh, private companies who are really excelling, uh, not only nationally, but internationally. And uh, the government is investing every year more in space programs. And that all came from a few enthusiastic professionals who went to study about space uh, elsewhere and then went back home and, and convinced uh, the right decision makers. 
Yeah, I think I've been watching them build the program down there. And one of the things that I, I love about where they've begun with the, the Australian Space Agency is it seems like they didn't begin the program with a government first approach. It seems like they began the program with a space community approach above all else. And you know what that really does, like I'm I'm hypothesizing here, is that's going to allow the Australian Space Agency and those members of that community to leapfrog. I think a lot of the communities out there in the world that first began with just tossing tons of government money at a problem, but being more diverse and more efficient by putting you know private money toward that and supporting those private entities. I, I love what they're doing down there. Yes, yes, I agree. There has been uh, a long period of um, maybe 20 years of building that community. Right. And investing in education as well. And I think that was a very clever step in the, in the roadmap towards a national space program to have uh, training courses uh, for Australians in an international setting so that they would develop their working relationships uh, with their future partners uh, in other countries. And that's how the Southern Hemisphere Space Studies Program uh, was born uh, some uh, 12 years ago or so. It was uh, modeled after the original ISU SSP that was touring mostly the Northern Hemisphere. So the Australians said, we see a potential for a yearly program in our country. So every year now, uh, since 12 years, there is this uh, five-week intense uh, multidisciplinary Southern Hemisphere Space Studies program that is attended by uh, graduate students and young professionals from all over, the, all, all over the world, but it has a special focus on the Southern Hemisphere in terms of the uh, team projects that they tackle and also the, the content of, uh, of the teaching and learning so I would say, yes, uh, there were smart people behind this, this whole uh, Australian space program. Super interesting. It really, you know, to paraphrase what, what Clint was saying, I almost feel like Australia as a whole, as a, as a country, is an incubator for space. Like it just, that environment really creates that, that community and, and the ability to, to innovate in that whole same manner. Yes, yes, I see similarities there with uh, perhaps California or some of the other U.S. space hubs where there is a, a whole community. And also now with the new space, we see that investors, they are beginning to see the potential of uh, taking equity in uh, startups. And this is happening in Australia as well. I agree with you. Andrew, this is a good a good model, and I wish other countries would follow uh, the Australian example. Yeah, so Clint, I, I took note you didn't call out Canada as as one of your favorites to follow. What's up with that? Well, they they <laughs> give all their money to one company in Canada, and that's pretty much the space program. Yeah, touche, touche. <laughs> we did get the Canada arm out of that. You did, you did. Yeah, yeah, and so did you guys. You guys use it a lot. Dexter, I mean, yeah. there's there's a couple oh. more out there. <laughs> I have a five dollar bill uh, upstairs with with Dexter and the astronaut, my my MDA buck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Canada is another country I admire. They were uh, having a very generous uh, space education uh, budget for many years, and they were sending uh, 
not only the largest uh, national delegation to the ISU programs, but also the smartest people. I mean, the Canadians who, who I saw uh, learning about space or working in space are, are really uh, bright people. I think one very positive thing that is a success in Canada is really uh, taking people from all types of cultural backgrounds and making them feel really as, as Canadians without losing their um, roots, their cultural roots. That's really uh, admirable. They, they are as proud of being Canadians as, as they are proud of having roots wherever in, in, uh, in the world. Andrew lets us know about that proud to be All Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Andrew. Like, he, has to, he has to play by himself. It's hard for him well, to defend himself. It, with us. If we go back to the beginning of the conversation, if you remembered two Americans and a Canadian founded ISU, I mean, we <laughs> could be founding something pretty, uh, pretty epic here. Space and 60. Yeah, yeah right up there. It's, it's right up there with ISU. <laughs> am I am I reading correctly? One of you is Canadian, right yeah. here. Ah, there we Andrew. go. Okay. okay. Yep, that's Andrew. He's our he's our Canadian on the team. He he brings all of the uh, I don't know what I want to call it, Andrew. What do you bring the to brains. the table? The brains. 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 Okay, that's there that's it. what we call it. Got it. That's, that's one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen a lot, one in the industry, and one of the things I I always love to kind of get as we get closer to the end of these conversations is to see what people see as the most exciting thing going on in the industry today. Like you're seeing a lot more of space to space business, so like you know on orbit servicing, and you see lots of Earth observation, which has got a really long history in the business, and now we're starting to look at deep space exploration and becoming interplanetary species. Like what do you see is like the biggest thing and the most exciting thing happening in the industry today? I believe that the best thing happening is that people on the street are beginning to realize that space can help us solve many of the challenges we have on earth. So in, I would summarize it by just saying space for Earth, right? If we look at uh, the startups that are being founded uh, around, and, and we have been following many of them because when we look at the alumni of, of ISU, there are now about 130 startups where an ISU alum has been the founder or the co-founder. So we can easily analyze and track and, and get some trends out of 130 companies in, in the past 20 years, founded by people we know well. And many of them have something in common, which is that they have decided they want to do something good for humanity, and they want to combine it with their passion for space. Some of these startups are now offering intelligent solutions to run space programs at uh, lower costs uh, using the cloud, for example. Others are uh, transforming uh, all these data that are coming down for free 
from Earth observation uh, constellations like uh, the Copernicus constellation, you can get so many useful information out of those uh, satellites. Uh, other companies are uh, specializing in weather services. This is something unthinkable of uh, maybe uh, 15 years ago, weather services, government. But now you look at Spire, which, by the way, was founded by an ISU alum. Their main business is providing very accurate and very reliable uh, weather forecasts using satellite data uh, to all types of vis uh, businesses and also government agencies. And this is uh, helping solve problems on Earth, whether it's uh, environmental problems or uh, uh, communications in uh, underserved areas or education. And uh, I think that's, that's what we uh, see happening, uh, space uh, for Earth to help us solve some of the, uh, the challenges that we have here. And this would include, I would say, also uh, climate change. If we really want to understand how climate works, and I'm not including the word change, because uh, some people still don't believe in climate change, but let's, let's call it climate. And it's probably easier to get everyone to agree that understanding how climate works is crucial because we all depend on it. And if you want to understand how climate works, you need about 50 parameters you need to know, you need to measure about 50 things. And these include uh, temperatures, humidities, uh, wind speeds, wave heights, uh, all these types of things that you have to measure with a lot of sensors. Otherwise, you will never understand climate. You will never uh, be able to simulate uh, and to forecast climate. So out of these 50 parameters, about two-thirds so a significant amount can only be observed from space. Wow. Two-thirds. Otherwise, you would need to place millions of sensors all over the, the atmosphere and the oceans. <laughs> so you, you, it would be unaffordable. Uh, so just the fact of being out there in space, you can understand how our planet works. So that's something to me that has a lot of value and also a lot of uh, fascination and and a lot of inspiration for our younger people who are now embarking uh, on this and there are even summer schools now on space and and climate for example <laughs> so this is uh, really a fascinating new field solving problems from space that's what we're all working toward yes everything that we do no matter what company that we've spoken with or who we've had on the show it's all about solving those those problems and i think as an industry it would be great if we could be better as an industry of communicating that to the general public who who sees space as a gee whiz rather than a problem solving endeavor yes very well said i agree so juan i realize we're at the end of our time is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with as we wrap up our our talk today yes yes of course i would say Make sure you study languages and that uh, sometime in your life, you have some experience in the U.S. or in Canada or in Australia. I love it. I like to toss a Canada in yeah. there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, one, it's been great having you on the show. It's a pleasure, just as exciting as we thought it would be. We can't wait to, to see you around the industry. Don't fully take off and retire. Stay involved. Keep 
transferring all that knowledge that you've gained throughout your career and, and um, keep sending it our way. Yeah, pass it on. Yes, thank you, Chad, Andrew, and, and Clint. Uh, keep the good work. Uh, congratulations. Thank, thank you. you. Until next time, Juan. Wow, what a what a great show with Juan. That was awesome. That was pretty uh, pretty fantastic. It was. You know the the interesting thing. The more I kind of think back on it and pick up of it, you know, it's not he's not in the official new new school portion, but ISU and the way he talked about it and kind of the connections and the community that was built and the people that came from there. It's almost like the roots of new school or new space. It, it kind of is. I kind of wonder what would SpaceX be like if if Elon went to uh, ISU. I don't know. We'd miss all the great stories of him, you know. It's true. Totaling a McLaren, getting not being hired by Netscape, all that sort of fun stuff. Putting the Rocket Man up into orbit. But you know, the number of people probably at SpaceX that came through ISU is probably super probably, high. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt. Yeah, I think we all know quite a few people who have gone through International Space University. And I felt the need to clarify for all of our American listeners when we were not talking about Iowa State, International Space University. <laughs> <laughs> ISU, different ISU. Different ISU. But you know, the number of colleagues that we've had throughout the years that went to International Space University, I don't think any of the companies that we've all worked for would be the same without the university there. No, no doubt about it. No, I think it, it really does bring people together, bring, bring people uh, perspectives and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but man, and also Juan speaks seven languages. That's incredible. That's wild. We we play, uh, Maya's got us playing hide and seek in four languages. What? Four languages. Who, so who you, plays so hide you're and seek always in four lost then. Is that is that what you're saying? I, I am always lost. Yeah, Maya, <laughs> Maya, our, our three-year-old. Yeah. Oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Four languages is tough, but seven languages, like that's just off the charts. Crazy. But, you know, I, I can imagine it's got to be a big help. You know, when you're working in any of the STEM fields that, you know, being able to speak multiple languages with scientists all around the world and engineers is has got to be an incredible ability to just get stuff done. And not only get stuff done, it goes back to the basics of communication, being patient, understanding, understanding there's more than one perspective, one more than one way to translate something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that was great having Juan on the show. I can't wait to uh, to have him back again sometime. And until then, keep it real, everyone. Keep speaking those languages. And we'll see you the next time on Space in 60. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks. Mm-hmm.